Welcome to the Lead in Davis podcast. Put a lid on it. We have a special episode today uh, where our guests are um, incredible leaders who I have the opportunity to work with uh, every day, every week. And uh, I want to introduce our superintendency. So starting with Dr. Toon. Hey, I'm Logan Toon. It's great to be here. John Zerbachan. I'm John Zerbachan, and likewise, great to be here. Craig Carter. Hi, everyone. Craig Carter. It's fun to be a part of this. So uh, I should I should point out Logan's an assistant superintendent. Uh, John's an assistant superintendent. Craig's uh, our business administrator and does super, assistant superintendent duties. Chris Williams. Tell us what you do, Chris. Too. Uh, I'm the director of communication and operations for the district, and you guys keep me close just to make sure I don't get in trouble. That's perfect. That's what we work. don't get in trouble. <laughs> and Dr. Fidel Montero. Good morning, everybody. I, w- I will be providing traffic updates this morning. Again, that's <laughs> my job. That's what we need. You know, that would be a great bit Breaking throughout this news. process to have just some guy break in and give us traffic updates, <laughs> <laughs> knowing that he has no traffic information. <laughs> okay. Well, welcome. And we're going to have a great conversation uh, today. But before we get into that great conversation, uh, I am going to administer the Lead in Davis questionnaire. It is a tool that has been specially scientifically designed to peer into your souls. Are you all ready? Okay. First question, and we're going to start with the man who has an answer to this, although it may be complex. John Zerbakken. If you had to choose one song that would play every time you walked into a room for the rest of your life, what would it be? One song... It would be the Eagles, actually Eagles, because there's no article in front of that. It would be Take It Easy. Mm. Well, that is your song, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Logan, same question. Uh, Ocean Avenue by Yellow Card, little 90s punk rock. Mm. I don't, can you hum that a little bit? What is that? It starts like that. It's a cool little guitar riff. Are those the lyrics? Right at the beginning. Okay. Yeah, they, they don't have good lyrics because it's 90s punk rock. Okay. Awesome. Craig? Well, I like the J.J. Kale song, Call Me the Breeze. Oh. What is that? Call Me the Breeze. Leonard Skinner also covered it. Oh, man. You know what we need in this podcast? We need them to do a little bit of, you know, post-production and and add a little riff for each of these. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. This generation's not going to understand. Chris? I'm going to go Rush, Subdivisions. Mm. That's a good one. Wow. Okay. For, they talk about kids who are on the fringe, forgotten about. I love that song. Mm. Little little teenage wastelandy from the Who. <laughs> okay, Doctor Montero. Intro song. <laughs> I guess it depends on the mood, but you know, I grew up with '90s hip hop, uh, West Coast to be specific, with the exception of uh, Biggie. So I probably have to go with Dr. Dre's uh, something from one of his, uh, you know, West Coast hip hop. Probably the next episode, but just the you know just the just the uh, intro, right? We're not well, talking about the, the rest lyrics. of your life. Whenever you walk in a room, it's going to play. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. 
I see I, I see my my people over there. You know, I okay. can tell they're nineties well, hip hop. Uh, on that, you're gonna have to give us a song. But let me tell you, I, I'm not I'm not typically going to answer these questions. But I saw Chadley and it reminded me, my my walk up music, uh, when I received an award in high school one time was see Chadley's laughing was so sure only Mama award? said knock you out by LL Cool J. That was my walk up <laughs> music. Um, and so when I retired at Yuma High School, when I left Yuma High School. My assistants, I, I told a couple stories from school, and one involved me making glitter shoes, which was putting glitter on shoes and made them really kind of cool, and, and they just mocked me relentlessly. So the last day I was there, my assistants all bought shoes, and they made glitter shoes, and most of them had the words, Mama said knock you out on their glitter shoes. So it's kind of an inside joke. But yeah, that, was, that would be, if I had to choose one, I guess that's already been my walk-up music. So I'd go with next episode, next the episode. instrumental. Okay, sweet. All yeah. right. Okay, we're going to go a little faster. Um, you're not all going to be able to answer this next question. We're going to go to uh, Logan. Your favorite Christmas or birthday gift as a child? Uh, got a little uh, electric piano one time from my grandma. Made my day. Still remember it. Fidel? You know, our family didn't have much uh, in terms of, you know, we were pretty poor growing up. So I still remember my mother just buying some, like, just simple toys. I think it might have been some G.I. Joes. And I just thought, you know, I, that I had won the world, you know, because I just, I knew, I knew how much sacrifice that was for her. So those were pretty special. Anybody else just have to share? Oh, I do. Okay. I definitely do. So my favorite gift is a gift I never got. So I was a little boy. My mom bought, my little brother and I, we always called the little boys, two years apart. We both got um, Green Bay Packer helmets. And this is in the 60s, and you, it's not like it was now. It was hard to get. Well, the helmet didn't fit my head. So <laughs> my mom said, hey, we'll take it back and we'll get a new one. Well, when Christmas was over, there wasn't a new one. So I got a stocking hat. My brother got the helmet, and I ended up with a stocking hat. Never got the helmet. I, I had it for a moment in time. I think you were going to say the Red Rider, you know, BB gun, right? <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't it fit, John? Something about the size of my head, <laughs> and we'll let it stay all by itself in there. Hey, you have a big, I haven't seen you at any of the meetings. <laughs> yeah, we're at the, the big head the meeting. big head meetings. Okay. Um, Craig, if you could have dinner with anyone from any time in history who is not a relative or a religious figure, who would it be? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, can I say two? Yeah, sure. So, well, I'll just go with one. Bart Starr. Bart I met Starr. Yeah, I met him a number of years ago at, at Cottonwood High. He came out for a, an autograph session. And he was the kindest man, I think, as far as an athlete, professional athlete I'd ever met. He was just so, so genuine, so kind, and uh, just a really a, a terrific man. Awesome. So, yeah. Chris, same question. If you could have dinner with anyone from any time in history who is not a relative or a religious figure, who would it be? Abraham Lincoln. He went through some tough times. I don't know how he made it through. Of course, we all know what happened to him at the end, but uh, the cabinet he put together were rivals of his. Uh, how he thought, how he looked at life, that would be fascinating to find out more from him. 
Yeah, I, I like that question going back really far in time because there's this part of me that smiles thinking, man, if they tasted our food today, you could take you could give uh, Lincoln some McDonald's French fries and he'd lose his mind. <laughs> what is this? Um, okay. Um, anybody else just got to answer that one? Okay. Everyone's going to answer this question. Logan, hamburgers or pizza? Hamburgers with bacon. John? Hamburgers. Craig? Pizza with mushrooms. Mm. Chris? Pizza. Fidel? It depends. (laughs) (laughs) Am I watching baseball or am I watching a football game? Okay. okay. Let's go with hamburger. Okay. I'm a hamburger guy, too, unfortunately, as my figure shows. Not that pizza would make me slender, but I'm a hamburger. Hamburgers. Okay. Uh, Fidel, what advice would you give to your 16-year-old self? What advice would I give my 16-year-old self? I think it's probably the same advice I would give my own 16-year-old son that I have now. Um, and that would be not to be so hard on, on himself. I think uh, when you're 16, you, you're pretty hard on yourself uh, about just about everything, the clothes you're wearing, you know, the people you think you, uh, who want to like you, um, you know, the emotions that you're experiencing. And I think if you could just dial that back a little bit, be okay with yourself, be okay with who you are as a person and have a sort of sense of, of, um, comfort that things are going to be okay. That's what I would tell my 16 year old self. Awesome. John, same question. Mm, My 16 year old self, he had hair so I can look at him. Let's see. I would I would tell him that no one is more confident than you are, that everybody else doesn't have it together. They all look like they do, and you always think every, the external world's got it together. I tell myself they don't have it any less together or more together than you. You're fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that compare ourselves to each other. I'm not going to get on a tangent, but yeah, that's 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 a huge burden and it ties your both your comments together. Okay. Um, Logan, if you weren't an educator, what would you be? Um, probably a CPA or a CPA or some kind of statistics, you know, statistician somewhere. Maybe helping insurance companies make a bunch of money. I don't know. Makes me glad you're an educator. Well, it's the only thing for me, really. Like, it's hard to answer that question because for me, that's that's what makes sense. That's what works for me. So it's hard to think outside that realm because of how much I love what we do. Hmm. It would be nice to have a CPA with personality, though. You would. Uh, I would. I would break the mold. (laughs) (laughs) You're making a strong assumption there. (laughs) (laughs) Craig, same question. Well, I started. I didn't start out in, as in the education world, but uh, um, so I I would have been in business where I was, you know, controller and running stuff like that. So I, but I'm glad I made the shift. It was the best move I've ever made in my life. It was awesome. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Awesome. Um, we're going to change it this question just a little bit. This is the first time I've done this, but I want everyone to tell me at, on the count of three what John Zerbakken would be if he wasn't in education. One, two, three. A musician. musician. <laughs> we were on the same page there, Dan. <laughs> yeah. 
a bad one, but I'd be a musician. <laughs> a poor be, musician. Dive bars and <laughs> such. Poor family. Yeah. He'd be gigging around yeah. the country. I would think Apple's number one salesperson. Uh, maybe. That could work, too. Maybe. Yeah. I'd probably be better at that than the musician part, but I have more fun as a musician. Okay. Um, Fidel, your house is on fire. Everyone is safe, and you have the opportunity to save one item. What would it be? I have a I have three boxes of pictures that go back to probably the forties, thirties um, of my family, mm-hmm. and I don't know how, why I ended up with them. I think I took them from my mom's house because I wanted to scan them. I still haven't scanned them, so I think they would be probably the the first thing I would take. Everything else, you know, is on the cloud. Awesome, Chris. Does everyone being safe include animals? Yes. Because I would have taken the dog. She would have given comfort to everyone. Uh, I've got to follow Fidel. I've got to really organize photos, but I would take as many photos I possibly could get. Craig? Well, uh, obviously, of course, Lisa would take the dog before me. But uh, um, assuming we were all out there, I think... uh, uh, family heirlooms, obviously, would be something we'd certainly want to try. We have some of our real important things in one location, so we'd grab those. Um, but we have a lot of things that we've collected from grandparents and great-grandparents and parents, and they mean a lot to us. So hopefully try to keep some of those some of those things safe. John, one thing. I would grab my—I I am, am, am in possession of my dad's— um, dress uniform from the military from World War II and this being Pearl Harbor Day. Mm. Mm. Um, I've got his dress. That'd be the first thing I'd grab. In fact, it's the only thing I ever said to my dad, he's gone now, that, you know, dad, in the end, I want your uniform because dad and I are this, about the same size. My brothers are, are, are a lot bigger guys. I said, you know, I could, we- one, I could wear that, but it's just, it's a pretty cool uniform. Mm. Mm. Awesome. Logan? Uh, assuming that Superhero powers are in play here. Uh, we have Kara's assuming, great, yes. assuming yeah, you know, yes. we have <laughs> Kara's great grandmother's piano at our house, oh. and so that would be a, a tragedy to lose that in a fire. Um, I am one hundred percent sure I could not get a piano yeah, I was say, up the stairs and out of the house <laughs> while the house was on fire. But you know, if superhero mm. if superhero powers in play, I'd oh, go yeah. get that piano and get out of there. Yeah, I, I think Save the piano. it's an imaginary question. You know what? Kara might actually send me back in for the piano. <laughs> in, in, like in reality, even if superhero powers were not in play, she might be like, you go get the piano. <laughs> she at least needs to make Figure a human out. sacrifice. That's piano. right. <laughs> at least she tried, right? <laughs> okay. Well, Dr. Linford, what is the thing you would get? Oh, man. Um, probably the, probably the, the uh, same uh, thing that, that many have said. I would I would go back in and get get those pictures that we haven't scanned yet. Um, haven't put on the cloud. I'm slow to the cloud, honestly. Um, yeah, I would get pictures. I'm, 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 I'm thinking of, you know, all the pictures. My, my wife and I were high school sweethearts. So we have a million dance pictures together. And I look at that kid, that dopey kid. And thank goodness he chose that really bright girl that had her stuff together. And yeah, I, I think I'd want to, I'd want to, snag that i know where the box is under the bed um okay craig if you could travel back in time 
to one day in your life, would you go back to re- to relive a great day or to fix a bad day? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, I would probably go back to relive a good day. Can you remember that day? Um, there were a lot of good days, but uh, nothing stands out specifically right now. But I had enough bad days that there's too many to choose from of those. And, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, those bad days kind of make us who we are and we learn from those experiences. But um, so I'd like to cherish and relish in the good, good moments. Fidel, if you could go back in time, relive one day, would you go back to relive a great day or to fix a bad day? Yeah. Um, I'm kind of a fixer. I like to, you know, fix stuff. Um, so there's probably plenty of opportunities I could go back to and be a little kinder, a little nicer. And I think in turn, that would turn out to be probably one of my better days if I did that. So I get the best of both worlds. John? You know, I, for me, bad, especially in bad days get more in the past, you forget them. You forget the badness of them. And I think it, in memory is more memories you have, the, the, the good days resonate greater. So I think I'd go back and relive a good day. Because I, when I stop to think, what are the I, the bad days? I can think of a handful, of, a number of good days. The bad days, I'd almost have to try to recreate the badness, and mm. that's not worth it. Chris, it'd have to be a good day because the two worst days were when my son and my wife were diagnosed with cancer. There's nothing I can do to change that. So, uh, a. a Fantastic memory was uh, being on the Maid of the Mitts, Mist at the bottom of Niagara Falls. All my family was there feeling the power of the Niagara, getting soaked. It was fabulous. There was not one person on that boat who was not gleeful, smiling as big as they could. Cheshire cat grin. It was fabulous probably remember that so viscerally because of all the, you know, all of the uh, senses on fire with the sound, the crashing, the water, the all of that. No question. Awesome. Yeah. Dr. Tim? I just finished a, a great book called The Midnight Library, and it kind of contemplates this same exact question. Uh, people are given an opportunity, the characters given an opportunity to relive some aspects of life and and, you know, Maybe before I read that book, I would have said, go back and fix a bad day. But I don't know how fixable they really are. You know, how much do we really own those days? And um, so I I'd definitely go back and live a good day. And, you know, my day is in recent memory, um, kind of like Chris's. It, it, was, it happened in the outdoors. And, you know, we just came up over a ridge on a big hike and saw the incredible view. And the kids were there and they had, you know, this sense of accomplishment. And it was just a good, good moment. Simple, but good. Here's a thought, though, right? If you're conscious of who you are today and going back and reliving something, I think that would be a powerful uh, healing experience, right? In terms of seeing, you know, approaching a situation with the insight that you have now mm. from experience, from, you know. And that, that's, you know, I've never had to answer this question, but I think I, when I look back over time, maybe I, I'm a... Maybe I'm a pessimist. Maybe I have regrets. I, I like to say I have no regrets, but um, there are things I would like to go back. And it, and it goes back to something you said, uh, Fidel, uh, moments where I wasn't as kind, uh, things 
you know, even in, oh man, elementary school, there are, there are times that I wish I, oh man, I was, I was one of the mean kids that day, you know, I, or I didn't support someone at the right time. I'd love to go back and be more heroic. Yep. You know, it's in, which, go ahead. It makes me think, Star Trek reference. Um, there's, there's an episode in one of the first movies when, when there's this dude running around on, 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 um, the enterprise who's making everybody happy, even makes Spock happy. He gets in their head. And so they're trying to get Jim Kirk to come along. And I remember that line from Kirk is don't take my pain. I need my pain Mm -hmm. that often it's the pain that defines you. And that the notion of going back to be able to fix that takes away the definition of who we become that, that those painful moments probably are more important in defining who we are than the gleeful moments. Cause the gleeful moments are easy. The painful moments, that's when you find out your true character. And, and that line of his, just the way he's looking at them all happy, he says, no, don't take my pain. I need my pain. It's, it's a great line. Yeah. What show was that? Star Trek. Star Trek. It's a little nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I remember, like, a little before your time for now. <laughs> Reruns, dude. So every year I listen to two books. Well, more than two, but two books. The Christmas Carol and Jacob T. Marley. And um, I just finished Jacob T. Marley driving down here today. And the thing I like about that is that, you know, obviously it follows on to the Christmas Carol and Scrooge and Marley. But um, Scrooge couldn't change what he had done for the previous 60 years or however old he was when he had this episode with the three ghosts, but he lived the rest of his life, um, to change that. And, um, and I, have always liked that. We can't change, you know, the mistakes we made and, but we can change how we live our lives as we move forward. And, um, that's just who we are. You know, we are who we are, like John said, because of our experiences. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. The last question of the Lena Davis questionnaire. And there we're combining two kinds of questions. What would you change about public education? And what would you change about yourself? In that context of public education? No, it doesn't or have to be. just in general? Just, I think just in general. But the first question is, the first part of that is, what would you change about public education? And again... This should be a this should be a lightning round. Let's go fast. Oh. Dr. Montero. Oh, geez, where do we start? Um, I think if uh, if I could snap my finger and change one thing, I would ask that the adults that are in our schools are more kind and more reflective about themselves, and not so hard on themselves. It's kinder. Chris, I would take violence out of schools. There would be no gun incidents, no nothing like that. There'd be no worry about whether I'm going to go to school and be harmed. That's that's where I would go. So not having been a teacher, um, but having the opportunity to volunteer in some classes this year, I would want every parent to spend at least one day in their kid's school or any school to see the amazing things that our teachers do every day and how happy the kids are when they're there. So unfortunately, in, in our society today, I think there's too many people that view education as, as the bad guy or, you know, they, they've got to fix it. it it's working great. And uh, I wish more people could understand that. One thing, uh, 
this is going to go contrary to where we're going in terms of education, but I'd, I'd get rid of all the, all the school choice. Um, education is the place that kids are resilient. It's a place that kids learn how to develop community. And educational choice has segregated our, our kids and our community to the point that when these kids are adults, they're not going to have the, had the opportunity when they were truly resilient to be able to understand how to create a community from all to diversity. And I think that choice has, has made it, has not given kids the opportunity to, to exercise that, that innate ability they have to be resilient in the face of, of challenge. Assuming the same access to superhero powers, I would have every student <laughs> and every parent understand every day exactly how much their teachers and school administrators care about them. Um, and and my, my answer to that would be uh, similar uh, to all of yours. And, I, and, it, and again, it, it assumes that this doesn't, doesn't already happen, but... Um, I would want to make sure that every student uh, knows that that they're loved, that they have a place, um, that they're safe. You know, if you if you come to us if you come to a space and you oh you feel loved. Um, there's a there's a poem called Late Fragment. Have you guys read, heard that poem? Mm-hmm. Um, I have to look it up because I'll I'll massacre it. I think, but. Um, there's a poem called Late Fragment, and it's about uh, this poet. It's, it's really the last, uh, the last poem he wrote. I, I hate to, to bring up something uh, that I that I don't have. It's Raymond Carver, but there he asks. He's asked this kind of this deathbed thing, uh, and he's and it, the poem is this. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? to call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. If you've, if you've talked to someone who's dying, you know, that's, that's what they want. That, that's what they want. Um, when I talked to my brother when, uh, in his last days, you know, that's what he wanted. And if I, could, if I could give that to kids, and the awesome thing is we can. You know, we, we have an opportunity where we really can. So... Um, I, I love whatever each one of you said because it, it, I think it, it fits into that, and um, and it's a real opportunity to to, to grow and and to to feel part of a community. Um, if we could do a better job now, what 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 would you change about yourself? What I would change about myself? Um, uh, gosh, I would be more resilient and more patient for for those things to come. Fidel, man. That's tricky. So what would I change about myself? Um, what I'm trying to change about myself is I'm trying to be a better listener. I'm trying to uh, understand, be more empathetic and see other people's points of view. So I'm trying to be less right, more uh, understanding, less dualistic. Uh, I'm trying to see things more, um, you know, as through through the lens of paradox. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Chris? This, uh, this is exposing a weakness of mine. Um, we already know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I have a good friend who would say, uh, don't let people live rent-free in your head. And that's something that I need to overcome. It's interesting because here I am in PR and I worry about what other people think. But I think it's gotten, I need to remember, uh, don't let people live free in your head. And I would, I would just 
have as a p- bit of advice for everyone. Uh, go with your go with your instincts because what you're thinking at your core is incredible, and you can do great things. So don't cut yourself short. Correct. Well, I think it's just something I need continually need to improve upon, and that's appreciating um, the people I'm around, people I get to work with, um, appreciating differences. And, and accepting and, and trying to understand those differences when for what I, for the life of me can't figure out why they don't agree with me. But, um, <laughs> uh, but understand that that's often the case and just appreciate that and be grateful for the blessings I have and the, and the wonderful people I get to associate with, which includes all of you. Oh, gosh. I'd, I'd more stick-to-itiveness, more attention to detail. I'm, I'm kind of like squirrel. Um, and, and I'll get just good enough at something to satisfy myself, but never great at it. I've, I've always said I'll never run a championship organization because it takes that stick to itiveness and attention to detail that has always eluded me. Well, we're all in trouble if that's you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's kind of the opposite of, of John's because mine is maybe even a little less attention to the detail and a little more attention to the human element of what we do. You know, to to care deeply and to ask with concern about, you know, people and their families and what's going on in their lives and just come to know and and be a part of of who we are in every aspect of life, whether that's in the community or in our homes or in our work or whatever. But just that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Uh, oh, no, we, we've been almost all the way around the table. Well, I, I started. Remember I said that I, I want to be uh, – I, I would say the, the thing that I've that I've tried to do the most this year – um, and some of it came from some criticism I received when I, when I uh, came into the position as as a school director that uh, I wasn't I wasn't as friendly when I went into school. I didn't go spend time with with the with everybody. I didn't I didn't yuck it up with the secretarial staff. I I went right to the principal, did my job, kind of in and out. Um, and that's not how I was seen as a principal. That was a change, a complete change for how I operated as a principal. Um, but I thought I needed to wear that hat that way because I, I saw some, what I felt were some, we needed some change. Um, as, as a superintendent, I put on this old principal hat a little bit. And with that comes uh, something I've probably never been as much. And I'm trying to be vulnerable consciously, just vulnerable all the time. And that's hard. And that's, that's a bit of a sacrifice. Um, but I've, I've, that's one of the first things I committed to. Was I, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be, you know, a little raw um, and imperfect because I can put on perfection pretty well. I can I can play that part and and be very in the pocket. But I've decided to be a little rough around the edges and just kind of throw it out and a little more uh, vulnerable, emotional. You know, I'm me, and you're going to get me. Um, that's that's been uh, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not very good at. It. I'm trying to navigate that part of it, but vulnerability. Honestly, that's the that's the thing I'm I'm trying to change about myself. Be become available to people. Um, let's have a little bit of a conversation around some of the principles. I don't know if we'll get to all of them before our time is through here, but I, I hope we'll just jump in and have this conversation because it's challenging about the some of the work we're trying to do um, with respect to the lead and Davis um, attributes. So uh, under introspection, this idea of how how do we ensure that we are cognizant of our pers- of our personal strengths, 
our preferences and our biases. So what do we, how do we know what we're good at, but also what our, what our biases are. And, and as we operate as leaders of this district, you know, what, what do we do to, to make sure we're cognizant of those things? I, I part, a bias is a bias and a blind spot's a blind spot because it's blind. So in a car you get, you, you know, you put mirrors out to cover up for those. I think what we have to be able to do is, is embrace, um, embrace criticism as our rear view mirrors, as our side mirrors, that, that someone says that and I don't see it. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It may, it, it may mean that it exists and I just can't see it. And so I have to fully examine that criticism and say, Ooh, yeah, that there's, there's reality there. And that's within my control to, to adjust. And there's an aspect of that too, that depends upon us. Cause we have to create an environment where that criticism or that, you know, feedback is safely received. And there's not, you know, there's not a threat to the person or their, or their job or anything like that, but that it's just a, an improvement to the work we do. You know, as an institution, I think it's, it's, it's easy to just circle the wagons, right. And defend that we, Oh, you know, it's not as bad as the critics say, or there's an article in the paper in the news. And, uh, I think, you know, a first instinct as a successful organization is to say, no, look at all these great things we're doing. That can't be right. Um, you know, I always think of new, new administrators and think of all the time when, when we became, we were new. Of course, we were full of ego. No administrator isn't. You came in and go, I'm going to be better than whoever it was before. And I'm going to, you know, mm -hmm. and you so focus on, well, I'm not them, which must mean I'm better. Mm -hmm. which when it really doesn't, because if that's all you're focusing on, then you are becoming them yep. because you've cocooned yourself to any, any self-reflection. Mm. I think there's this, there's this thing about the, that is kind of central to how I think about a leadership. And that's some of it is inoculating yourself against things that you, you personally disagree with. You personally uh, think uh, are pitfalls or you don't value um, and I, I use that word inoculation a lot. Like, how do I, how do I, when I first became a director, how do I not become the district? You know, how do I inoculate myself from having that kind of centralized thinking and, and forget what it's like to be a teacher? When I was a principal, I was, I was so concerned that I was going to forget what it's like to be a teacher and inoculate. Well, there's, there's really no way to do that. You know, time, time takes you away from that. And you're kidding yourself if you think, you you remember or you're still in those shoes. So I think the way you inoculate yourself is you you make sure you listen to those voices. And some of that is voices of criticism. And in fact, we, we get all the we can we can all we want are voices of criticism. Not hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, another question. So this is this deals with vision. How do you remain consistent in considering what success looks like? And I think that's something that we grapple with, especially with our with our. Uh, DEI work, our, our diversity, equity, and inclusion work, um, defining what success looks like in such a, you know, paradoxical, complex, you know, equation. Well, I think that definition changes um, because one's vision has to evolve and, and progress. So you reach a certain plateau and all of a sudden, you know, new horizons opened up that we didn't anticipate, we didn't know about before we got up there. And now we have to look, you know, look farther down the road. And so I think um, success is something that I don't know if we ever truly achieve complete success, but we're constantly looking forward and modifying our vision to, to reach that next plateau. 
I like to think of success in, in our responsibility as maintaining trust. If parents continue to send their children to our schools, if our students continue to want to be there, if our employees want to continue to come to work, we're successful. Yeah, there's things that we continually have to do and improve, but if that trust, that faith continues, uh, then we, we're doing what we, I don't know how to describe it, we're doing what we should be doing. Let's build upon that trust level and bring it so that people can walk away saying, if I were you, I'd send my kid to that school because it is outstanding. Yeah, that's something I've always appreciated uh, since since I came into the district as a teacher and you know took my first steps as an educator. Um, I felt I felt some of what John uh, talked about with a sixteen as a sixteen year old that everyone was better than me. Everyone knows what they're doing. Everyone's confident, and um, I think I we've always hung our hat on being incredibly uh, competent at what we do. That it was it was difficult for other districts uh, to, to do what we were doing across the board. And, um, we had, you know, I, I talked about it at the beginning of the year. We had this swagger that I think is valuable. I think there's a confidence that you should have that we know what we're doing. Um, but I think some of that can get lost in, in a, you're nothing but bluster and swagger. And if you don't know what success looks like and how you're going to measure that, um, and keep it in front of you, it's, it's, uh, to me, it's an interesting paradox that we that we face because of the things that Craig talked about right that it's it changes okay interconnection uh how do we ensure that we are intentional in building a people-centered culture you know we've been talking a lot about culture this year and you know we got to prepare people to accept new things and to be uh and to to kind of take new approaches with some expertise and you do that by by really by building culture what what do we what do we do to ensure that we're building a people-centered culture? Because we're in the people business. You know, it's it's not different than the parent business in a way. You know, your little kids, you can say all you want, they're going to watch you, right? You can say, don't do this, don't do that. But if you do it, or, you know, kids are the be- the greatest at finding hypocrisy. They're not the greatest at finding it in themselves, but they see it in others, specifically their parents. I would say it's the same thing in, in our work, that, you know, we can say, we can pontificate, we can make proclamations we can do all that stuff um but in the end our folks our 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 employees our parents our students are going to watch how we interact with one another they're going to watch who we are and they're and they're going to define who we are based on that not on what we said and i think sometimes we especially at our level because we don't have intimacy with as many employees and certainly not with kids we tend then to rely on our written and spoken word where no it's it's you know, how do you interact when you show up at the ball game? How do you interact when you show up at that school? Um, how do you interact when that parent comes into your into your room? It's how we do it, not what we say and what we write. Yeah, I think that's important because, I mean, there's several leadership quotes that basically say the same thing, that um, if we truly take an interest in, in our people, the people that we interact with, and they know that we care about them as a person, um, they'll they'll do whatever they can to help out and to make sure that we're successful, and I think that's the key that we can't be successful unless our unless our people are successful and 
and knowing who they are, knowing what makes them work, knowing their family situation, taking a keen interest in their welfare, I think goes a long way. Love your people, right? Operationalizing loving your people is complex. And sometimes, you know, you, I struggle saying, uh, giving a roadmap for that. But I think it's, it's all those things, right? People-centered culture. Okay. Duty to develop. What do we intentionally do to bring out our people's best thinking and work? I had a conversation yesterday with Fidel in his office at the end of the day. And, you know, he kind of gave me some updates on the work that, that's going on in, in the DEI area. And, and he kind of laid out this, this roadmap of, of committee structures. And it, it was clear to me how intentionally he was capitalizing on people's strengths, but also pairing people with other people. And, and so, you know, you think like duty to develop is just like this intensely personal thing and everybody just shows up in this room and people take care of each other. There's got to be some organization behind it. There's got to be structure. There's got to be strategy. And that's, I mean, that, I walked out the door going, dang, that's, that's a pretty good, pretty good approach. So, and I don't mean to speak for you, Fidel, but that I walked out the door yesterday thinking about, you know, it's, you wouldn't normally think about an organizational chart or initiative like that kind of being an effort in duty to develop, but it was. How did you know, Fidel? Because I, I saw the same thing. I thought, oh, interesting. Like you put a specific directors, we won't talk about their names, but so on culture on culture and climate, right? You, you picked a couple people that can be a little bit a foil for each other, but both you would say if they have a strength, they might bomb it maybe at this other area. But if they have, whoever you are, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, 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 they, but they have a strength that you know they bring that to the table. How did, how did you kind of come to that? Um, well, first of all, I mean, I think um, one of the realizations I'm having, you know, some stepping into a broader leadership role, um, when, when, you, when, you, when you're working with a small with a smaller group, say as a high school principal or what have you, as a teacher, it feels, although it may, it may be deceiving, that you have more control over and more influence over that space. And now as a, as a you know, in a superintendency uh, where you have sort of influence over 10,000 employees, that's really daunting. Um, and I think when I first started this work, I was trying to approach, and, I, and I'm still sort of got to get out of this frame with that lens of a principle where you're trying to manage everything. And one of the sort of realizations I've had recently is that in order for us to do any work uh, and have any influence uh, from from a leadership standpoint in such a large organization, so you have to tap into people's talents and skills, and you have to empower them. And I think that's one of the best things you can do in a in a leadership position where we're at. We just have that opportunity to empower others, and then uh, I, I think the fast or the quicker that you can understand people's strengths, uh, people's uh, sort of dispositions, and you know, pair them up with folks that could that have other strengths, other dispositions where, you, could, you know, when you connect them both, hopefully you get a synergy that's really powerful. Yeah. That, to me, 
there's there's this selfish aspect to that because you think of the relief that you feel like even with those committees the relief I felt as I was reading through your documents last night uh, seeing the committees and seeing the, yeah. the emails that went to them their assignments the 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 pressure that it takes off the leader to know that I've got someone awesome that can do this and I'm going to give put them in a what we're going to call an intense environment, not a tense environment, an intense environment where they're required to use their very best skills. They're going, yeah. to, they're going to stretch. You're going to put them in a position to stretch. Well, and that's one of the, you know, uh, one of the things I'm learning from, uh, from a leadership standpoint. It's a paradox, right? You let go, you let go, you let go uh, of whatever it is that you're trying to control. Uh, because when you first start out in leadership in any role, you try to control, control, control. And I think, what I'm learning now is the more you let go, the more you empower others, the more you can actually have that organization uh, succeed. So back to your question of success, how, how, do, you, how do you have an organization this size um, be successful as well? The more you engage folks and the more that they're rowing and feel part of uh, whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, I think you can achieve some, a certain level of, of success. Okay, our last question. We're going to try to do this in three minutes or less because um, I think our producers are getting nervous. They're like, this is the longest Lee and Davis episode in history. That's why they have edits. That's why they have edits. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, <laughs> students I've learned when they're editing our stuff are like, can I edit the superintendent's lame joke out of this podcast? Do, what, do, I, do I have the authority? Okay. Students, if you're Ch- listening, the answer to that is yes, yes. you can. <laughs> Chadley will have no trouble editing us. Yeah, I know, Chadley. <laughs> Cut. Okay. <laughs> Um, mindset question, how do we maintain our humble confidence and, you know, with an emphasis on confidence, how do we maintain our humble confidence to seek constant progression? I think, you know, I was, I didn't answer the question about how you manage bias, but I think if you start to look at what, what you don't like about others and realize that you're probably just projecting what you don't like about yourself and have that be a starting point um, for self-reflection, I think it'd be really interesting. And uh, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to understand that, right? But if I get frustrated at John because of A, B, C, and D, it's probably something I don't like about myself. Mm. So some food for thought there. Yeah, I don't think the confidence has to be all that humble. Mm. Um, Frank, I really don't. I think um, we, we have... We have we, we can be, we can certainly be overly confident, but I don't think we have to be humbly confident because I think that 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 doesn't serve us well all the time. It's like one of the, I know this is a, a auditory um, medium, but I'm doing hands now. It's like, oh, really? Don't don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. But I really want to hear it. I think this space we're in the catalyst as an ex, as, as a great example of the confidence we have as a district. You know. With, with Jay Welk and the start of it and then Brian Hunt and the continuation of it, we did not provide for Catalyst a here's how it's going to look at the end. It was we got an idea. We have a space. What can we do with that space? Oh, we could do this this thing. And then we, we put people like Jay Welk, like, like Brian Hunt, we, put, we said build something. And then they took it and built it. That's, that's Davis. To me, it we we do that. This is this is an example an example, but that's across the district. That giving we we have the right to be confident because we do we replicate this all over the place. That we've got a great idea and we have got great people who we are willing to let execute that idea. Um, and I think we can be we almost can be boastfully confident of that. When we talk about you know this is you know Davis, we always truth is we have in my entire career in this district 
we've always been that that Davis for the leadership before us and the leadership certainly comes after us. It's a it's a main ethos of Davis that we're not just going to do it. We're going to do it real well. And the thing that I like about that is that it it provides that opportunity to celebrate where we are. Um, I'm listening to another book now that after my last one, but it's it talks about the Guinness Book of World Records. It's the happiness advantage, and it talks about how the Guinness Book of World Records is is constantly being revised because those records are constantly getting beaten. And so once you're and and the notion is that nobody's really at the pinnacle of anything that you can you can achieve and achieve and achieve and achieve. And then for me, that humility kicks in when you say, okay, what's next? What's the, what's the next record that we're going to beat, you know? At one point, the, the scientists had decided that it was impossible, physically, anatomically impossible for a human being to run a, a mile under four minutes. And that's since been debunked, you know? And I, I think the same thing about all the impossibilities that people say about the work that we do. So something I've learned or I'm learning about confidence is I think sometimes confidence, um, it's, a, it's a mirror. And... Sometimes we project confidence when we're scared. Um, so I think I, I, I like to reframe it and think about presence as opposed to confidence. I've heard people describe like that the greatest achievements, like in sports, for example. I've heard people describe Michael Jordan as he wasn't the best athlete. He wasn't, you know, necessarily the most physically gifted person on the floor, but he was the one who was the most present. And this is coming from the guy who's mm-hmm. constantly checking his phone, right? Um, but... <laughs> Presence is really is really a powerful tool because when you're present, then you're really honed in to the work, right? You're really honed in. And I think confidence automatically, you know, you project confidence automatically without having to, you know, fake it. Yeah. Well, and I, I think confidence can be drawn from other people as well. For example, you know, we don't all know how to do everything and so you know hopefully we try to surround ourselves with people who offset our weaknesses so that we know that you know we've got that covered not by me but by somebody else Um, and so as we move forward as an organization you know I think we have the ability and the confidence that as a team we can accomplish what we need to accomplish because of the skill set we all we all bring to the table yeah, I think, uh, and I spoke to this earlier, but uh, nothing gives me more comfort than uh, my confidence in our people and our, our, my confidence that we can get it done. And, and I would say that the pinnacle of that is my confidence in, in the gentlemen who are sitting around this table uh, with me today. Well, folks, uh, our time is spent. Uh, we have broken the world record for the Lena Davis put a lid on it podcast, and I think like in oh, terms of quality or in terms of well, length? Uh, length, length. In other words, you can wake up now. Quality, <laughs> in quality. If my calculations are correct, we're number seventeen. Okay, quality. good. That's not bad. No, uh, no, excellent work. Thank you. Thank you for your thoughts. I wish you know there will be. We're we're looking at long form versions of this and. And uh, this would be the group to do that. Uh, There's much more to say um, about all of these topics. Appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us today, Superintendency. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.